do any of our previous old-fashioned Sundays. You know that one of the things that we like to do is uh, to reach back into antiquity and bring up a pastor from the past. We have heard a couple of times from uh, Dr. Charles Whit- or Charles Whitfield, Dr. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, and we have heard uh, from Dwight L. Moody. I have always wanted to share with you this particular pastor and his sermon. But quite frankly, I have been terrified to do so. And I'm actually quite terrified to do it today. So I hope Christians are praying today because uh, this, is, uh, this is going to be an interesting one. Uh, I want to speak today uh, in the words of uh, Jonathan Edwards and preach his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you've been here before, you know that uh, oftentimes I would uh, dress up as that particular person. I dress, of course, uh, Moody just dressed like this, so it was not a big deal. But Spurgeon wore a frock coat, and so I would, I would sometimes wear a frock coat and preach like that. Jonathan Edwards wore a long black robe, and preaching bands, they're called. You see the picture there in the, in the bulletin, and he wore a white wig. And, uh, you know, I actually thought about it. Those of you who know me know I'm not afraid to do that. But uh, I also thought, you know what, this sermon is so important that I didn't want anything to distract from it. And I believe that would have. I believe some of you would have been watching the wig the whole time and not paying attention to the words. Jonathan Edwards was a small-town pastor for 23 years in a church of 600 people, as well as a missionary to Indians for seven years. He and his wife reared 11 faithful children, and he worked without the help of electric lights. He worked without any modern conveniences, no word processors, He didn't have quick correspondence between people. He didn't even at times have sufficient paper to write on. And yet, living only until 54 years old, he left a library of over 300 books. This man led one of the greatest awakenings of modern times. The Great Awakening, you've heard it. You've heard it referred to. He wrote theological books that have ministered for 200 years. And he is now considered by both secular and evangelical historians alike to be the greatest Protestant thinker that the United States of America has ever produced. But if you ask people today who have heard of Jonathan Edwards, what they have heard about him, they will almost always likely mention that he is the man who preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. And indeed, that is his most famous, most well-known sermon, and perhaps it is the most famous sermon ever preached on American soil. And it's the cause of great criticism for Jonathan Edwards. Because some think that due to its harsh nature and its quite graphical, albeit accurate, description of hell. Uh, it, it, it paints him as, a, as kind of a judicial, judicious, judgmental, I guess that's the word, uh, evangelist. You know, the fact is few people, Christians included, believe in hell anymore. Maybe you don't believe in hell. A lot of preachers don't believe in hell anymore. Some famous preachers write books trying to explain away hell. John Piper, who's a pastor and author, he explained once why Edwards found it necessary to use such terrifying and alarming descriptions of hell, while preachers today often water it down or avoid the topic altogether. And Piper's conclusion was, Jonathan Edwards really believed in hell. Most people, most preachers today, don't. But you see, something was true in Edwards' day, and it's every bit as true today. And that is that hell is real. And we need to understand and believe in hell. It is real. And it is horrible. And it is to be avoided at all costs. 
Just on Facebook the other day, I saw somebody posted this. They said, hell is so real and painful, no warning is too strong. And you know, if Jonathan Edwards had had a Facebook account, he would have clicked like right there. You see, it's this horror of hell from which Jesus, for which Jesus died to save us. God loves you. And God poured out his wrath on his own son so he wouldn't have to pour it out on you. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Paul said to the Romans. That's why Thomas Watson, another Puritan pastor, once said, until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And that's why Timothy Keller, a preacher in New York, he says, unless you believe in hell, you will never know how much Jesus loves you. And that's why Penn Jillette, Penn Jillette, one half of the magician team, uh, Penn and Teller, and a renowned atheist, said once in a YouTube video, he said, quote, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that eternal life is possible and not tell them that? And Edwards would add to that. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe hell is real and not tell them that? I have to define a couple of terms. He's going to use a term in here called the natural man. You'll hear him say that several different times times, and if that does not make sense to you, it simply means a lost person, a person who has not trusted Christ as Savior. Uh, It is a biblical term, and uh, that's the way he's using it. So if you hear me say natural man, he's referring to someone who has not yet come to Christ and not yet believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And one thing that I will ask of you as you listen, please don't stop listening. Please listen to the end, because the majority of uh, Edward's sermon is black. Unpleasant. Ugly. That's why the criticism. Because he's describing the condition of the lost soul. But if you listen to the end, you get past the first two-thirds of the message, you're going to see the broken heart of this preacher. Because he's weeping over the lost. He's explaining that it does not need to be so. God made a way. So please hang on until the end. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would help me now. I pray that you would guide and direct, that you would give me wisdom. And I pray, Lord, that this this message, which is not mine, it's something that came from someone else so long ago and that you're blessed in so many ways. I pray, Father, you'd do it again. And I pray, Father, that as we listen to it today, we'd not take needless offense, but we'd say, is this really true? Does it apply to me? Lord, we believe in the Bible here. We're Friendship Bible Church. We believe every word of it is true. And, Father, we know that every word that is in this sermon can be shown to be true from Scripture. And so help, speak through Jonathan Edwards once again. Do again what you did before. Have a great awakening break out amongst us. Holy Spirit, fall upon us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And now let us hear from Jonathan Edwards. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge his people. Their foot shall slide in due time. In this verse, God threatens vengeance upon the wicked and unbelieving Israelites who were God's people and who lived under the means of grace. 
But in spite of God's wonderful works toward them, they remained, as it says in verse number 28, without sense, having no understanding of the blessings. As verses 32 through 33 say, their work brought forth poisonous, bitter fruit. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their wine is the venom of the serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. The expression I have chosen for my text, in due time their foot will slip, seems to imply the following things concerning the punishment and destruction these wicked Israelites faced. They faced the risk of destruction like one who walks in slippery places, faces the risk of falling when his foot slips. We see that same metaphor in Psalm 73 and verse number 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. It implies also that they are always exposed to sudden, unexpected destruction. One who walks in slippery places is apt at any moment to fall. He cannot know if his next step will allow him to stand or fall. And when he does fall, it's instantly and without warning. Again, Psalm 73, verses 18 and 19, Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed? Another thing that is implied is that their fall will be of their own doing. No one will push them. One who walks in slippery places needs nothing but his own weight to cause him to fall. And the only reason they have not fallen already and do not fall now is that God's appointed time has not yet come. The passage says, in due time. That is, in God's appointed time, they will slip. And they will fall of their own weight. God will cease holding them up in slippery places. He will let them go. And in that very instant, they shall fall into destruction. A man who stands on slippery, declining ground at the edge of a pit cannot stand without someone holding him. And when he's let go, he immediately falls and is lost. Now, my interpretation of these words and of which I am convicted is this. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. And by the mere pleasure of God, I mean, I mean His sovereign pleasure, His arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by absolutely nothing. And the truth of this interpretation is made clear by the following ten considerations. Number one, God doesn't lack the power to cast wicked men into hell at any time. The strongest man has no power against God. He's not only able to cast wicked men into hell, he can do it easily. Sometimes earthly princes have trouble subduing a large band of rebels, but not so with God. There is no fortress that can defend against the power of God. Though vast multitudes of God's enemies band together, he easily breaks them into pieces. They are no more than huge piles of light chaff against a whirlwind or stacks of dry wheat stubble before a raging fire. We find it very easy to step on an earthworm on the sidewalk or to, or to cut a slender thread that anything hangs by. It's that easy for God, whenever he pleases, to cast his enemies down to hell. Who are we to stand before him at whose rebuke the whole earth trembles? And so God doesn't lack the power to cast wicked men into hell at any time. Number two, they deserve to be cast into hell. 
Justice calls loudly for an infinite punishment of their sins. In Luke 13:7, the divine justice proclaimed by Jesus himself says of the tree that brings forth such poisonous grapes of Sodom, cut it down, why should it use up the soil? The sword of divine justice at all times waves menacingly over their heads and only, only the hand of God's arbitrary mercy and divine will hold it back. They deserve to be cast into hell. Number three, they are already condemned to hell. They deserve to be sent there. That eternal and immutable rule of righteousness that God has fixed between him and man finds them guilty so that they are already bound over to hell. Jesus said in John 3.18, whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Every unconverted person properly belongs in hell. That's his place. That's where he came from. Jesus said to the Jews in John 13, 23, you are from below. And that is where they are headed. It is the place where justice and God's word and the sentence of his unchangeable law have assigned them. And so they are already condemned to hell. And number four, they are at this very moment the objects of that anger and wrath of God expressed in the torments of hell. The reason they don't go down to hell this very moment is not because God is not angry with them. As he is with many miserable creatures already tormented there by the fierceness of his wrath. In fact, God is considerably more angry with great numbers that are now on earth. Some of them undoubtedly sitting at ease with themselves in this very congregation. It's not because God is ignoring their wickedness and therefore doesn't resent it that keeps him from loosening his grip and letting them fall. God is not like man, though many men believe him to be. The wrath of God burns against them. His damnation of them does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is right now, white hot, ready to receive them. The flames rage and glow as we speak. The glistening sword is sharpened and held over them, and the pit has opened its mouth under them. They are at this very moment the objects of that anger and wrath of God expressed in the torments of hell. Number five, the devil stands eagerly ready to pounce upon them and seize them as his own as soon as God permits him. They belong to him. He owns their souls. He controls them. They are his property. The demons stand behind each of them and watch them like greedy, hungry lions stalking their prey, held back only by God's restraining hand. And if God should withdraw, withdraw that hand, they would instantly pounce upon their poor souls. The old snake lies in wait for them. Hell opens its mouth wide to receive them. And if God permits, they will be swallowed up and lost in the blink of an eye. Number seven. I'm sorry, number six. In the souls of wicked men, hellish tendencies reign that would soon flame up into hellfire if not for God's restraint. The very nature of carnal man, powerful and exceedingly violent, propels him toward the torments of hell. Isaiah compares the souls of the wicked to the raging storms of a stormy sea, and God says, to here you shall come and no further. But if God should withdraw that restraint, the sea would wash away everything. And sin is the ruin and misery of the soul. It is destructive by nature, and without God's restraint, it would need nothing else to make itself perfectly miserable. The corruption of the heart of man is huge. It's boundless in its fury. While wicked men live on earth, it's like a fire contained by God's restraint. But if it were let loose, it would inflame all of nature. 
And as the heart is now a cesspool of sin, if the sin were not restrained, it would immediately turn the soul into a fiery oven, a furnace of fire and brimstone. And so in the souls of wicked men, hellish tendencies reign that would soon flame up, if not for God's restraint. Number seven. And please listen to this one. Number seven. Wicked men are not safe for a moment just because they cannot see any sign of impending death around them. Natural man is not safe just because he's healthy and sees no imminent danger in his vicinity. The many and continual experiences of men throughout the ages prove that apparent health and safety don't mean their next step will not be into another world. The unseen and Unthought-of ways of leaving this world are innumerable and inconceivable. Unsaved men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering, and there are innumerable places in this covering so weak they will not bear a man's weight, but no one can see them. All the means of taking sinners out of this world are in God's hands, and they are universally and absolutely subject to his power and determination. Wicked men are not safe, not safe for a moment just because they can't see any sign of impending death around them. Number eight, natural men's caution and care to preserve their own lives or the care of others to keep them alive don't make them safe, not for a moment. Divine providence and universal experience bear testimony to this. There is abundant evidence that a man's wisdom provides no security from death. If it were otherwise, we would see wise men living longer than fools. But as the teacher says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 16, like the fool, the wise man too must die. Number nine, all the scheming wicked men do to escape hell while they continue to reject Christ will not secure them from hell one moment. Almost every natural man that hears of hell fools himself into thinking he shall escape it. He flatters himself in what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do to ensure his safety. Everyone figures out in his own mind how he will avoid damnation, convinces himself he's a pretty smart guy and his schemes will not fail. They hear that few are saved. They hear that the majority of men through the ages have gone to hell, but each imagines he's smarter than the rest and he will escape. But foolish people miserably delude themselves. They place their confidence in their own strength, in their own wisdom, but they are trusting a shadow. If we could speak to those who are now in hell and ask each of them whether they expected while they were alive and listening to preachers talk of hell, that they would ever end up in such a place. They'd probably all reply, no, I never planned to come here. I had other plans. I thought I had planned well. I thought my scheme was good. I intended to be careful, but it came upon me unexpectedly like a thief. Death outwitted me. God's wrath was too quick for me. My cursed stupidity, I was flattering myself, dreaming of what I would do in heaven. And when I was saying peace and safety, sudden destruction came upon me. And number 10, God is under no obligation by any promise to keep any natural man out of hell for one second. God is under no obligation by any promise to keep any natural man out of hell for one second. He certainly has made no promises, whether of eternal life or deliverance from eternal death, but accept those which are contained in the covenant of grace, the promises that are given in Christ in whom all the promises will most surely come to pass. Whatever some have imagined and pretended about promises made to natural man's earnest seeking and knocking, it is crystal clear that whatever actions a natural man takes in religion, whatever prayers he makes, 
until he believes in Christ. Until he believes in Christ, God is under no obligation to keep him a moment from eternal destruction. Natural men are held over the pit of hell in the hand of God. They deserve the fiery pit. They are already sentenced to it, and God is dreadfully provoked. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames rise and flash about them. The fire pent up in their own hearts is struggling to break out. They have no interest in Christ the mediator, and there are no means within reach that can be of any security to them. In short, they have no refuge. They have nothing to take hold of. And all that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will an uncovenanted, unmerited forbearance of an incensed God. Now, I'm dwelling upon this awful subject so that unsaved people in this congregation might be awakened. What you have heard is the life story of every one of you who does not know Christ as your Savior. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone lies below you, and there is nothing between you and that hell but air. And it is only the power and pleasure of God that holds you up. You're probably not aware of this. You're probably not aware of this. You're not now in hell, but you don't see that it's the hand of God that holds you back. You're counting on the good state of your health and your self-reliance, but that's absolutely nothing. If God should withdraw his hand, your self-reliance would no more keep you from falling than this air could stop a falling rock. Your wickedness makes you as heavy as lead and presses you downwards towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink swiftly into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your self-reliance and your best schemes, your self-righteousness would no more hold you up and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would stop a falling rock. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not tolerate you, not for a moment, for you are a burden to it. As the Bible says, all of creation groans with you. All living things are subject to the bondage of your corruption and not willingly. The sun does not willingly shine upon you to give you light to serve sin and Satan. The earth does not willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lusts, nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air does not willingly provide you breath to maintain the flame of life in you while you spend it in the service of God's enemies. The world would spew you out. Were it not for the hand of God, the black clouds of God's wrath are right now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and rumbling with thunder. And were it not for God's restraining hand, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the time being holds back the tornado. Otherwise, it would come with fury and your destruction would come like a whirlwind and you would be like dust on the floor. The wrath of God is like a dam. On a flooded river, holding back roaring waters, rising higher and higher. And the longer the river is held back, the more ferocious ferocious the water when the floodgate is finally opened. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed so far. The floods of God's wrath and God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The floodwaters are constantly rising and building more and more strength, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the roaring water back as it streams mightily against the dam. 
If God should only remove his hand from the floodgate, it would fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and engulf you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, even 10,000 times greater than the strongest devil in hell, it would be as nothing to his standard. Thus, all of you, whose hearts have never been softened by the Holy Spirit, all of you that have never been born again and made new creatures and raised from the dead in sin are in the hands of an angry God. However, you may have changed your ways and maintained a religious facade, bringing your family to church on Sunday and sitting in the house of God with your most pious Sunday face. It is nothing but God's pleasure that keeps you this moment from being swallowed up in everlasting destruction. However unconvinced you may be at this moment of this truth, there is coming a time when you will be fully convinced. Those who have gone before you in similar circumstances can testify to that. For destruction came suddenly upon most of them when they expected no such thing. And they sadly now know that the things they depended on for peace and safety were but thin air and shadows. There is no other explanation why you did not go to hell last night when you went to sleep. There is no other explanation why you were allowed to wake awake this morning and no other reason why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason why you've not gone to hell since you sat down in your pew in God's house this day, provoking His pure and holy eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending His solemn worship. Yes, there is. No other reason why you do not drop down this very moment into the depths of hell but that his hand holds you up. Sinner, think about the fearful danger you are in. Think about it. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God whose wrath is as provoked and incensed by you as any of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath licking about it and ready at any moment to burn it into. And in spite of that, you have no interest in Christ, the mediator, nothing with which to save yourself, nothing to keep away the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing you have ever done, nothing you can ever do will induce God to spare you one moment. Consider just three more points very carefully. First of all, whose wrath is it? It is the wrath of an infinite God. If it were only the wrath of a man, even the most powerful man on earth, it would be insignificant by comparison. In the olden days, the wrath of absolute monarchs was dreaded because they had the possessions and lives of their subjects completely in their control. They could do as they wished. Proverbs 20, verse 2 says, A king's wrath is like the roar of a lion. He who angers him forfeits his life. Anyone who enraged the monarch is apt to suffer the most extreme torment the human mind can conceive and conflict. But the most powerful despot on earth in his greatest majesty and strength and armed with his greatest tortures is but a feeble, despicable worm in the dust compared to the great almighty creator and king of the universe. All the worst kings of history are as grasshoppers before God. They are nothing. They are less than nothing. The wrath of the great king of kings is as much more terrible as his majesty is greater. Listen to Jesus in Luke chapter 12 and verse number 4. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. 
But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And number two, it is the fierceness of his wrath that you are exposed to. We often read of the fury of God, as in Isaiah 59. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies. Or Isaiah 66, see the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like the whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebukes with flames of fire. And in other places in the Bible, Revelation 19, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. The words are exceedingly terrible. If it had only said the wrath of God, the words would have implied something infinitely dreadful. But it says the fierceness and wrath of God. The fury of God. The fierceness of Jehovah. How incomprehensibly dreadful must it be? And who can conceive what that means? But it also says the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. What will be the consequence of that? What will become of the poor worm who suffers that? To what dreadful, inexpressible, inconceivable depth of misery will the object of such wrath be sunk? Please, carefully consider this. You who are here today who are not saved. Today, God stands ready to pity you. This is a day of mercy. And you may cry today with some hope of receiving mercy, but once the day of mercy is past, your most lamentable and mournful cries and shrieks will be in vain. You will be forever lost. And number three, it is an everlasting wrath. Everlasting. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God for one moment. But you must suffer it for all eternity. There will be no end to this perfectly horrible misery. When you look forward, you will see a long forever, a boundless duration before you that will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul. And you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. And you will know with certainty that you must wear out long ages, millions and millions of ages in wrestling and fighting with this almighty merciless vengeance. And when you have done that, you will know that it is but just the blink of an eye compared to what remains. Your punishment will be infinite. Who can fathom the state of the soul in such circumstances? All that we can say about it is but the dimmest of descriptions. It's inexpressible. It's inconceivable. Who can know the power of God's anger? How awful is the condition of those who are daily and hourly in danger of this great wrath and this infinite misery. But this is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has never been born again. However moral however strict, however sober, however religious they might otherwise be. Please give this your most careful consideration, whether you're young or old. There's reason to think that many of you who are in this congregation hearing me talk will actually be the subject of this very misery for all of eternity. We don't know who you are, in which seat you're sitting, or what you're thinking. It may be that you're perfectly content and you're hearing all of this without alarm and you're flattering yourselves that you're not the persons we're talking about. You shall escape. 
If we knew that there was one person and only one in this whole congregation that would be the subject of such misery, what an awful thought that would be. If we knew who it was, what an awful sight it would be to see such a person. But what a pity. Instead of one, how many are there here who will likely remember this sermon in hell? Most likely some here today will be in hell in a very short time, perhaps before the year is over. And it would not be a surprise if some people sitting here today in this church in health, peaceful and secure, should be there tomorrow morning. Surely you know some people that never deserved hell more than you. And looked as likely to be still alive today as you are, but now they are past hope. In hell for all of eternity, crying in their extreme misery and abject despair and wishing they were in your place. You are in the land of the living. You're in the house of the almighty God. You had the opportunity to obtain salvation. What would those poor, damned souls, hopeless souls, give for one hour's opportunity such as you now enjoy? And now you have this extraordinary opportunity. It's a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and he stands calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. This is a day when many are flocking to him being welcomed into the kingdom of God. Many that are daily coming from the east and the west and the north and the south. Many that were recently in the same miserable condition as you are now in a happy state. And their hearts are filled with love for him who loved them first and washed their sins away with his own blood. And they are rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. How awful to be left behind on such a day. To see so many others feasting. While you are pining away and perishing, are not your souls as precious? Are not your souls as precious as those already saved by faith in Christ? Are not there many older people here who are not yet born again, who are aliens to the commonwealth of God's chosen and have done nothing since the day they were born but treasure up wrath against the day of judgment? Dear friends, your case is extremely dangerous. Your guilt and hardness of heart are extremely severe. You need to wake up. And you, young men and women, will you ignore this priceless opportunity when so many others of your age are renouncing youthful vanities and flocking to Christ? And you children who have not yet confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, do you not know that you're going down to hell to bear the dreadful wrath of God who is now angry with you every day and every night? Will you be content to be children of the devil? When so many of your friends are coming to Christ and are becoming holy and happy children of the King of Kings. So now let everyone here who does not yet know Christ as Savior. And are hanging out over the pit of hell, whether they be old, middle-aged, young, or children. Would you now respond to the loud call of God's word and providence. This year of the Lord, a day of such great favor to some will doubtless be a day of remarkable vengeance for others. Men's hearts hardened and their guilt grows on such a day as this if they neglect their souls. And so let anyone who does not know Christ awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Run for your lives. Don't look back. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. Let's pray.
Father God, I pray that as we think now through the words that were spoken so long ago by Jonathan Edwards, such harsh words, such difficult words, and yet, Lord, such glorious words when we consider that Jesus died to make them so unnecessary. I pray today that if there's even one in this place to whom this is spoken, that you will, you will let them stop at nothing to make their way to the front and trust Christ as their Savior this day. I pray, Father, for a great awakening. I pray that it would happen in our hearts and that we would all examine ourselves and determine whether or not this is true of us. Have we ever trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior? Do we know for certain that we are calling upon Him and believing in Him and trusting in Him and nothing else? Lord, that we would be able to escape from this great wrath. Help us now, I pray. Speak to our hearts now, I pray. Holy Spirit, would you do a work? These were not my words. These were not Jonathan Edwards' words. These were your words. And so I pray that you would speak to our hearts, drive them home. And Lord, let nobody leave this place with that fate hanging over their heads. Save souls today, we pray in Jesus' name.